Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, HCI Research Associate Dr. Leandra Hernandez and her colleagues continue their weekly COVID-19 convo via Facebook Live to discuss all things COVID-19 related. I, I don't know. Should we should we kick this thing off? Sure. Um, I, I was thinking, Carrie, about what you said about um, the kind of the desire to blame, the desire to find a patient zero to you know to assign a point of origin, um, and the news that came out in the Times just recently that said most of the cases on the East Coast were seeded by people who had the virus in. It caught the virus in Europe. Um, they can tell that by the the RNA signatures of the virus that it was, you know, those sort of micro changes that are that, that as the virus mutates, that it was actually from European trips, European travel that seeded most of the virus on the East Coast. And of course, at one level, that really doesn't make any difference at all. <laughs> I mean, it's the same virus. It's the same ultimate viral origin. But why does that matter so much to us? Um, and we see so many people, um, and certainly I see them on social media, uh, wanting to assign blame and all the kind of anti-Asian racism that goes with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this, and, and of course, part of it is politics. You know, well, we blocked travel from China, which actually didn't happen, but whatever. <laughs> but in fact, it was really coming in from from Europe at, at that time. Um, that's really where we got the majority of our East Coast um, illnesses. And, you know, what are the differing mechanisms of blame for uh, cultures that we feel are more like us um, versus, hello. Hey, Megan, you made it. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan. I'm on a Facebook, so I was really confused about how I was trying to connect at first. Well, Yay, welcome. we're glad you're here. Megan is one of my amazing colleagues in our communication department at UVU. Megan, do you want to tell everyone a little bit about your research interests and whatnot? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am in the comm department with Leah at UVU. I'm in the public relations emphasis. I'm a quantitative uh, survey researcher. I have done a lot of research in science and environmental communication. Um, and my kind of interesting tie to the COVID-19 discussion is, is really that um, I've been teaching for the first time in the semester crisis communication. And so really it's been this kind of ongoing case study, you know, that first started very removed as we talked about what was going on in China and then in Europe and then 
here and how it's how it's influencing everyone's lives. Um, so it's it's been challenging but rewarding to to teach that class right now for sure. Yeah, I'm sure. We were have a lot of really good connections to what Pamela was saying too. Um, yeah, I was just uh, following up on something that Carrie has been talking to her students about, which is the obsession with finding an origin for a disease or finding a patient zero and then kind of evaluating their behavior, right? Like, did they cause this? Is it someone's fault? Mm -hmm. And the news that recently came out in the New York Times that actually the, the variant of the coronavirus that is circulating most on the East Coast um, actually came from people traveling from Europe. So mm -hmm. all of the kind of discussions of we closed the border with China, which in fact didn't happen, but you know that that we blocked the the source of contagion. Really, that's not where it was coming from at the time that it was right. uh, that it was being seeded at multiple places on the East Coast. So we're thinking about blaming and what the mechanisms of blaming are. Yeah. Um. So it's it's been interesting to see that evolve. So how? How do you each deal with that in your various disciplines and courses and lives? <laughs> yeah, so I told you all in week one that I teach um, health communication primarily, but I'm also a media studies person, right? And, and media ethics. And I've been spending a lot of time this semester with my students trying to critically deconstruct the media representation angle of it, particularly from the xenophobia perspective. So in class, we talk a lot about um, the way in which perception spread about COVID. And, and we talked about it a little bit last week, right? When we were focusing on scapegoating. Like, I think it's, it's easier for the larger American public to, and I don't want to generalize, but I think segments maybe to feel better about the disease or the virus from a self-efficacy perspective if they know where it came from, right? There's, there's someone you can pin it on from um, a blame perspective, which kind of creates that further self-distancing and like when Pamela, you were talking about the um, the origins on the East Coast in terms of it really coming from from Europe. Like I don't recall seeing that much in the news as much as I would have liked. Right? Like how how is that information getting disseminated or not? And how is the American public really being informed of that part or not? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it was in the New York Times, but I think that's maybe the kind of news that takes. Um, it's harder to put in a soundbite because it involves things like mutations and people don't really quite understand what, right. what's going on with that. And so, you know, it's not the kind of above the fold, big headline that's easily digested. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like it relates to a lot of the stuff we've been seeing about, um, I've seen a lot of talk about like the, the military fighting sort of metaphor for the disease. like. Oh, we need to like with Boris Johnson when yeah, he's a fighter. <laughs> he's a fighter, so he'll be okay, right? Mm -hmm. Like, hmm, what it that's I see why people use that kind of language and how it can feel reassuring, but at the same time, it's like that's not really how viruses work, right? Like, right. Uh, but we love to use the fighting and bravery and courage sorts of uh, yeah. metaphors to talk about. Mm -hmm our immune systems working or not working to fight off a disease. Right. Yeah. And and Trump, how he's saying, you know, I'm a wartime president. This is who won't deploy the Defense Act, but okay. Having <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a nation of origin kind of ties in with that, like, oh, we're fighting this 
disease that came from, you know, wherever it came from, but it, it seems like people are more comfortable saying it came from China. We're fighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, we all know language matters, right? It's, it's what we do. It's what we research. It's what we talk about. Um, and it's interesting to see a lot of the health communication research that looks on metaphor, particularly with illness and disease, right? So we're battling cancer. We are survivors. Um, it's, it's the same kind of rhetoric that's utilized in all of the marketing campaigns for like major hospitals and healthcare organizations, right? Um, but it just doesn't fit as well for me when you think about it being like, an internal sort of uh, illness manifestation like cancer versus a virus, right? And yeah. um, I don't know if we know enough about it now in this current moment, but it'll be interesting to see like what the broader implications are of the war battle metaphor mm -hmm. for COVID in terms of how larger populations make sense of the disease and whether or not that galvanizes perhaps more or less um, like social distancing and adherence to a lot of the public health messages. Right. right. And I think that, that those metaphors also um, are so relatable to what the conversations you're hearing about in the hospital too, like, mm -hmm. you know, putting on their PPE, you know, their protection um, right. before going to face Battle the gear. disease. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Lorenzo Cerviccia, whom some of you know, um, has a book on the mobilization of kind of military metaphors in, um, in dealing with public health issues. And the problem with a lot of these military metaphors, I mean, it, it, it falls in sort of naturally when you have to have a whole society or, you know, uh, mobilization, right? Because very often you are using laws for appropriations that are in fact linked to, um, to wartime uh, or disaster um, situations. But very often the war on what have you, the war on poverty becomes a war on the poor, right? Mm. War on drugs becomes a war on drugs in people's bodies, becomes a war on people who take drugs. Mm -hmm. And a particular body and like racial ideology embedded within that too. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. exactly. And we're seeing, of course, enormous disparities in um, in the impact and the mortality of the disease um, across racial categories, et cetera, categories of income. And you know, that also will fold in as the virus continues to make its way into our everyday life. That's mm -hmm. also gonna fold into the way that people perceive other groups. Yeah, oh yeah. We have, we have a question here. Laura says the government is considering reopening the economy in May. How will we normal human beings reopen this new challenging lifestyle? I think that's a great question. Any thoughts? I think it's hard to, to answer when we don't know what that lifestyle is going to be. We don't know the extent of these changes. And yeah. 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 I'm wondering, I was just thinking about this with masks and face coverings, whether mm -hmm. that would be something that would just become normalized in the United States like mm -hmm. it is in other countries. I think it um, would. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also think about like the larger blanket sort of statement for the country, either jiving with or not jiving with the individual states and when they're peaking, right? So, I mean, like it, it might make more sense for certain states to reopen financially um, but not for others, right? I was reading reports earlier, and Megan, um, you could probably shed more light on this as well, 
you know, reports saying that in Utah, the cases are going to peak in late April. Others are saying cases are going to peak in late May. I mean, you know, we just don't know yet. Right. And even even within states, um, different cities, mm-hmm. urban areas, rural areas, it's going to peak later in the rural areas, mm-hmm. probably in many rural areas. But it really is kind of population by population center. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's also we're probably going to have sort of rolling responses mm-hmm. where there's an outbreak. And so now this this town has to kind of close down a little bit. And, you know, there was an article called The Hammer and the Dance that talked about some of this, you know, the initial kind of big quarantine to um, to flatten the curve. And that then we would be kind of playing whack-a-mole after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it starts to be this long I mean, we do this all the time, but it, this crisis really brings it to light that this the this dance of managing risk, right? Like, what yeah. are we? You know, we're we're always there's always risk involved in human contact, right? Like every everything we do has risk. There's risk involved in driving and going to work and sitting in a classroom and stuff. So, yeah, this will you know have to think about many people will think about what is an appropriate or an acceptable level of risk and what is not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Jenna, I was thinking about your comment about like the masks and will this become like a, a normalized activity? And, you know, you hear, I hear a lot, I think of pushback of uh, people saying, you know, well, we're, we're not China We're you know, it's normal in Asia. But then, I, I mean, I was hearing, you know, uh, a news article, it was a radio uh article where they were were talking about how in Hong Kong, it really only became a normal practice after SARS in 2004. It really wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Um, So, so, you know, these things can actually happen quite quickly and become normal. Yeah. And I mean, I've been thinking a lot about, somebody mentioned the disparities that we're seeing in the effects this has on people and even things like masks, you know, there's disparate ways in which these things affect people, like lots of groups of people of color are not comfortable wearing masks in public, you know, Mm -hmm. that reads differently as a white woman or Mm -hmm. as like a young black man. And, um, you know, that there are so many complicated factors that make this, these diseases not affect everyone equally, even though we like to say Mm -hmm. that diseases are democratic or democratizing or, you know, go across borders, they don't listen to the, to, uh, you know, socioeconomic stratification or something, but really the effects of them do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, viruses don't discriminate, but people discriminate and that has an impact on how viruses interact with people. Right. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, well, and it's it's fascinating as well to hear about how governors are are essentially participating in in bidding wars to try and get masks. And so you have different state economies that that have different levels of of what they're allowed to to go to, and that dictates who gets the masks. Right. It's been a sort of catastrophic failure of the um, of federal level management of this crisis mm-hmm. um, that's setting states against each other. And, you know, we've, and we've seen California shipping events that they don't need to, directly to other states. And, and I think that's been maybe the most helpful thing that we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was, I was thinking about this, um, especially Megan, when you were talking about the masks, I, I still have several good friends who are still stationed in Japan where we were last year. 
And a lot of them were telling me now, and you can see the conversation playing out on Facebook, that even they're starting to have mask shortages over there. And then in terms of the bases, now they're starting to be quarantined and they can't leave and essential personnel, this and that. And then there's even larger concerns about the types of masks that they can or can't use depending on what ship or like what platoon they're in and all these other things. And um, one of my really good friends made a plea for friends and family members in the States who could sew to make masks and then ship them over there. So that way um, they can get the mask to the service members before they deploy. And I mean, I've been thinking about how this impacts the service members too, particularly when you have service members in like carriers or destroyers or small moving cities where the risk of COVID being transmitted so high and so rapid. And um, yeah, it's like you would think that when you're somewhere in Asia, like when we were in Japan, masks are so common stance, you see them everywhere and everyone wears them. And now even they're starting to have a shortage in the small town where we were stationed. So it's yeah, wild. Yeah, the uh, I think we've we've seen the first death, uh, COVID death from the Roosevelt, um, where the captain was relieved mm -hmm. and where he himself tested positive. Yeah. Um, after that, I'm also thinking about um, you know we we tend to attribute intention and blame to new circumstances, to right. novel circumstances. Like every year, the flu kills sixty thousand Americans, give or take. Um, and you know when people get the flu you don't have that kind of search for an origin. <laughs> We're mm -hmm. gonna find out who is responsible for this flu um, because it feels like it is part of nature to us because it is an ongoing part of our lives. It's part of the texture of our lives. And so we don't get all excited about attributing meaning to it. But when yeah. something happens that's out of the norm, it seems to be very hard for people not to want to embed it in a narrative that has to do with responsibility and possibly intention, which is where a lot of the kind of conspiracy theories are going now. Oh, it's a bioweapon, you know, this kind of nonsense. Um, and so, you know, those novel circumstances make us fearful and make us perhaps more inclined to want to find a scapegoat, to want to blame or other it, yeah. um, to, you know, to find a target for that sense of, you know, increased urgency that comes with novelty. Mm -hmm. It's like well, from a management perspective, right? If, if you can try mm -hmm. and figure out where it's coming from or you have the origin, then that's at least one less thing you have to worry about. Right. And in, in crisis preparedness, it's all about, you know, the, the preemptive management that you can do to prepare for a crisis. But when you have this novel event that you can't pull out a case study and look at how other people have addressed something like this. I mean, we're trying to with, with comparisons to SARS and Ebola and, and um, swine flu, but you know, it, nothing has reached this level. And so people are behind, you know, it just kind of mentally trying to play catch up. And so these kind of heuristic shortcuts of being able to assign blame, I think can make people feel better when there is that uncertainty, even if it is very, very misguided. Right. Yeah. We kind of want to fill that gap with a narrative logic, mm -hmm. right? There's something we don't understand. So we want to assign it a story, mm -hmm. an agent, a motive, uh, circumstances that could have been different, right? <laughs> we kind of want to understand it in those terms um, rather than, again, kind of understanding it as this is 
it, this is new to us, but this is now part of the texture of our lives. Jen, you were saying something like this a couple of weeks ago that you have to kind of take it in and realize now this is part of your world as well. This is now part of your ecosystem. Yeah. I saw Kari was, Kari typed in the box if we can hear her because she's trying to ask a question. Kari, can you try again? I cannot hear her. Can you can you type something? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. She said she'll type. Okay. All right. Yeah, I've been thinking about this too, about like which what registers as an emergency. You know, and like the fact that this is out of the norm makes it register as an emergency. And a lot of people tried to write it off by comparing the numbers of people dying to other things that are mostly the flu. <laughs> you know, I think we can go the other way with that, too, and think, why don't these other preventable deaths register as an emergency? You know, like, there are lots of other things that, that we could mobilize and try to find solutions to. But the problem is that they're, they're things that we're used to, um, or there's things that would require these really big systemic changes that we don't feel like we can make. Whereas, you know, sewing a mask or something like that feels more attainable, which is what I've been doing to make myself. <laughs> and very often there are things that we blame on individuals. You know, if we have like right. deaths from opioids, we say, well, they, they chose to take them. Right. You know, and then we start to say, well, within a certain marketing context and prescription context in which they were really, Right, to take them by by people that they trusted. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can look at the deaths from uh, from air pollution every year, um, which are just enormous, right? Absolutely enormous. But there, I think, because again, it's it's a big problem. It's a problem attributed to groups, to large entities, yeah. where it's harder for us to clearly um, assign blame, right? It's hard for us, again, as humans to kind of think, oh, here's a story, but it's this big amorphous thing, this company and not a person who's doing it. And so then it's kind of, you know, it's like the, you know, it's the system, right? It's too big to find a way through. It feels that way. Mm -hmm. Carrie has asked. I think um, this is related actually. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> So the for those of you tuning in, her comment says the article her students were reading from her and Lorenzo's edited collection endemic. There's a glorious article by Claire Hooker et al. about how when we label something endemic, it naturalizes it and allows us to not worry about the social causes of preventable death. There's a great demonstration about how when the disease doesn't affect Americans, um, we consider it more often an endemic like with polio. Right. So. Right, an epidemic versus something that's endemic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, viruses don't kill people, people kill people. Mm -hmm. Right, and I think we're, we're clearly on our way to coronavirus becoming endemic in the medical sense of the term, that is where it's within a community and that's where it's originates, not coming mm -hmm. from outside. Um, but yeah, that language of endemic versus epidemic mm -hmm. and pandemic have very different kind of emotional registers yeah. for people. Mm -hmm. um, so Megan, how are you seeing this in the modeling? I mean, as you say, you know, it's hard to compare these. That's what models do, right? We compare yeah. these things, but then nothing quite matches up. 
And then that kind of that that room for additional interpretation allows for, again, the entry of narrative, the entry of emotion, the entry of, you know, all the kind of fantasizing that we do. How do you deal with that when you're teaching people to think through the numbers? Oh, man, there's so many different things I could unpack in that. Um, I think the first thing that is really unique to this this um, COVID-19 situation is that it's not just one crisis. There are really so many sub-crises, you know, so we can talk about the public health crisis. We can talk about the economic crisis. We can talk about the crisis within multiple levels of government, um, the crisis, information crisis. I mean, we have a tremendous issue with where people are getting their information from, which kind of feeds this feeling of uncertainty. And, you know, that ties into everything else, like tying into government where, you know, our president is saying different things than governors. And um, one of the most important things to do in a crisis response is, is try to have a clear and concise message. And we don't have that right now, which is very much feeding into um, some of the kind of public uh, backlash um, and an emotional response. Um, do you have any thoughts about the modeling? Because I've heard a lot of people talking about these models and now Fauci has said maybe, you know, the, it'll be less, fewer deaths than the previous model predicted and yeah. a lot of different kinds of, which is great news, but yeah. I've seen a lot of responses to that that aren't this is great news, but rather like, oh, he's not reliable. Um, or, oh, it was never serious. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, the numbers are made up and they're just saying whatever they want, you know, I mean, and I think, yeah, yeah, I think, I think we have, uh, in, in our culture, we have, um, interestingly, I, I would argue we have kind of this distrust of numbers, like people very much want to point to numbers, but they're also very quick to blame numbers. Um, and, and so that's, I think why, I mean, Leah and I have had long conversations about, uh, about kind of mixed methods and how, you know, numbers and stories can really work well together to kind of alleviate some of those concerns. With the modeling that we're seeing, I mean, Fauci and, and, and the CDC, you know, they're erring toward more serious because if, if we can say that something is is really um, really serious and going to result in all these deaths, and then and then it doesn't, then that ultimately is a better thing than if it's the other way around, and, and there are are ultimately more deaths. Um, I think what is difficult is that even though there are all these professionals who are doing different models, that and they are comparable. I think that that's another really important thing that these models are being done by institutes all around the world and they're they're finding similar things. So this isn't just trusting one organization. There are a lot of people who have been doing modeling. Um, but because this is really unprecedented, it, everyone's just doing their best educated guests. Right. You know, and my, my, my partner is a doctor. And so it's been really interesting to to see his his experiences. And, and when he comes home from the hospital and talks about what he has seen. And in Utah, it, it's been relatively quiet so far. He just had his first COVID patient yesterday. Wow. Um, yeah. And so it's it's a weird thing to see those models and have it not connect with 
what you're experiencing in your day to day. And I think that leads to even greater distrust of the models because we're visual human beings and, and we want to see, you know, the, the numbers reflect what is happening in our lives. Right. Right. We talked about that a little last time, how the kind of narrative wreck of, you know, of the economy and of people's, you know, normal way of being in the world is not reflected in what we feel in our bodies very often. And, we, you know, mm -hmm. as you say, we don't see the sick people, you know, unless we're in the middle of a place that's an epicenter um, and we don't feel sick. And yet our lives are upended. And it's very hard for people to wrap their heads around that. And when you add the kind of political polarization and disinformation that's circulating, you have a really toxic mix. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, this this virus is really going to become real, unfortunately, when they know someone who, who gets sick, who potentially dies. You know, I mean, for President Trump, it was really when when Mar-a-Lago had to be, uh, you know, who quarantined that, that it kind of hit home for him. So so we really do oftentimes need that personal relevance for for reality to kick in. Right. Right. I also saw um, some psychologist colleagues of mine just published an article about um, math illiteracy, number illiteracy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and gloves. And the challenges of trying to communicate about these numbers. They had done some sort of study, or they were looking at a study with asking people which is larger, two ninths or three sevenths, and like a huge portion didn't know um, or picked the wrong one. So just in terms of the public understanding when we're trying, you know, when, when experts are communicating even just the, the basics of the numbers and then you add in the, the fundamental uncertainty of dealing with an unprecedented pandemic and we don't know exactly how it's going to turn out and nobody knows exactly what the R naught is and, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's an impossible task to communicate a clear and consistent message with this disease as it's emerging. Yeah, and impossible in part because we're not doing things like mass testing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, South Korea gives us a really good model. Yeah. Um, and Germany give us a really good model because they're testing, they're keeping track of their numbers, they're being transparent about their numbers, and they're showing us what certain forms of quarantine and social distancing can do. But lots of countries, including ours apparently, are not being transparent, are not able to, or are not willing to do the kind of testing that would um, that would provide this kind of information. I have a an ex-graduate student I'm very worried about. Um, she thinks she's getting better, but um, she presented, you know, someone in her household had direct contact with a COVID patient. She presented, was diagnosed with, um, with uh, pneumonia, and then, uh, they said, you know, you can't be tested. You're, you're, you're in your thirties. Um, we don't have tests for you. Um, and so, you know, so she's kind of come out, she thinks she's come out the other side, but she still describes symptoms that I find frightening. Um, and she, you know, apparently can't, can't go and, and get the test and be seen and, and be treated. And that is really appalling to me. And this is a person who has insurance and, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. it would be equally appalling if she did if she didn't have insurance. But this the point is that this is a person who has some privileged access. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard it'll a lot. Be so sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say it'll be so interesting to see how some of these these uh, social and political issues evolve 
following COVID-19 and, and following the 2020 election. I mean, even just the statement of saying she's privileged, she has insurance, it, you know, it's it's so relevant to to the political um, uh, landscape that we're all in. So. Right. And, and I was thinking about what Andy asked the first day about, um, you know, we are moving uh, toward, you know, from a model of like personal health and responsibility for health to a public health model, and that that's what comes into view in public health emergencies. And that we think differently about the rights of the individual, for example, to a limited number of, you know, of ventilators. Um, but we also think differently about the responsibilities of the individual to the collective and the responsibilities of the collective to the individual. Mm -hmm. And that is something that's been really obscured in our public discourse um, for the last, and I mean, not just since 2016, for the last decades. Um, this has become a, a part of the polarization of thinking from, um, you know, a sort of um, conservative perspective going toward a much more kind of libertarian, almost anarchist perspective, mm -hmm. um, you know, where there's no responsibility to the collective uh, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just not, it's not sustainable, um, you know, outside of some kind of non-existent state of nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is, maybe the best, one of the small positives or potentially big positives of this situation is an opportunity for us to imagine different ways of living together and different different ways of being a community. You know, I mean, I think mm -hmm. there's, I, I wanna have hope that that's what will come out of it. I don't have a ton of hope that that's what will come out of it, but um, there's an opportunity for that. I mean, even just the fact that we're, we've all changed our lives so drastically you know, and, and stop doing so many things and discarded mm -hmm. a lot of things that we realized haven't weren't essential and realized other things that are essential, you know, maybe there's some some opportunity to think about what kind of community we could be or want to be. Right. And and you're right, the timing of it, um, Megan, at the time the timing of it with this particular election, this particular mm -hmm. moment in American history. Um, maybe gives us a different lens on it than would be happening, you know, in another country that's not in the middle of this election cycle, that's not at this particular point of their, you know, um, political and social arc. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, wow. Well, I mean, we're 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 at four thirty-seven. Carrie, what do you uh, what are you thinking? <laughs> oh, I usually oh okay. <laughs> it's like it's a half hour. Well, oh no, we've been on here an hour because we usually get talking and have a good time. <laughs> um, so, what else are we thinking about this week? Um, Jen, what are you what are you thinking most about in your classes and your uh, world? <laughs> this, I mean, honestly, I've been having a really hard time teaching during this and keeping up. I know some universities have gone to all pass fail. We haven't. Um, it's hard. I have an enormous amount of grading that I've just been yeah. <laughs> off, off. And I just keep, it, it's sort of reframing the way I feel about teaching because it's, it's making me feel like 
much more skeptical towards grades <laughs> and um, a desire to, to just be much more empathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, hopefully I'm normally empathetic with my students, but um, you know, it's making, I don't know, I'm having a hard, I'm just really having a hard time focusing on the, the content and it's just making me think about the connections between the material and the current and the present day and what kind of skills I really and what kinds of forms of thinking I really want to enable in my students. And yeah. 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 Jen, I don't, I don't know if this is something you've been feeling, but I related a lot to what you just said because I had a moment um, last week when I was doing check-ins with some of my advisees through video chat, you know, everyone was just crying and having a really rough time. And I felt like kind of guilty even expecting to still go through the motions of, hey, here's your weekly announcement, you know, assignments you at the end of the week. And like, on the one hand, I understand the need for us to still have this kind of structure and normalcy to everyone adjust. But then on the other hand, I just feel like in this moment, you know, there's so much more at stake than maybe a journal entry or a recording. So I've been having a really hard time mentally and cognitively uh, making sense of those two disparate ideas over the last few weeks. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I mean, and one thing is that we, we were all in the midst of courses, most of us at least were in the midst of courses that we had already designed very differently, that were already unfolding very differently. And suddenly we shifted over. So it's not like we designed the courses to do a certain thing and now we don't believe in that thing anymore. It's that, you know, the really the world really just kind of the ground shifted under us. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and under our students in in big ways. Mm-hmm. Um as we go forward and we're gonna be teaching summer courses or po- possibly even fall courses, we'll be designing these courses more intentionally. But but mm-hmm. I think you're right. I mean, I I see possibilities for designing courses more intentionally, but then I think, what am I trying to do here in, yeah. the, in this moment? Mm-hmm. What, yeah. what is the important thing to get across? And I mean, I yeah. teach 19th century British literature. So yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I mean, there are certain skills, but they're scholarly skills. I mean, we talk mm-hmm. a lot about the history of capitalism. We talk about war. We talk about theories of history. We talk about all of those things. Um, but at the same time, it's a very different kind of course than um, than a course, for example, where you're teaching numerical literacy mm-hmm. um, and teaching it from models that are unfolding, you know, in the moment. Um, so I think, you know, I do think a lot about that. I mean. Um, I believe that literature is important. I believe that history is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe that it can both be a respite and a way of creatively thinking through um, the problems that we're facing. But I'm gonna have to think a lot more about how to how to design for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I was thinking back on uh, Leah and I were a part of a call on Monday with a, a bunch of um, interdisciplinary new faculty at our university and um, having kind of a similar conversation, I think, and and people really saying, someone said, I feel like it's taking me twice as long to do things, like, you know, and I think it's because our, our minds are elsewhere, you know, we're trying to focus on the task at hand, but there's so much else going on. And it really does make uh, these other things feel feel trivial. And, and I'm trying to remember that with my students as well. And, and I noticed too, like if something 
happens if someone has a concern then it's that much more magnified now online you know if if there's like a a typo on on a assignment then i get you know like 10 10 emails instantly because you know it just it seems like it's it's so much of of a larger deal because we're not face to face and we're not able to reassure them and in that way Mm -hmm. Um, yeah kari kari said the thing is that none of us needs to be focusing on school right now, but the corporate model upon which universities operate is forcing us to engage uh, students included. And it also makes you wonder, like, is there even any room or space in this larger corporate academic model for the the lived experience of the pandemic or the crisis, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. on the one hand, I, I really appreciate all of the institutional effort to try and make the move online as seamless as possible, right? And for those of us who have taught online before, um, I think we were a little prepared for that. But I think what I was less prepared for, and this is something Megan and I talk about all the time, right? Like the like how to ensure that we can be there for our students in the best way, right? And I know we're all doing an amazing job, but sometimes it's just hard to know or to feel that we're doing what we can for them on the relational, emotional level that goes so far beyond just, you know, don't forget to turn in your assignment. I hope you're doing well kind of a thing. Yeah. Right. Well, and it is such... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's such a difficult balance too, because... There is the corporate, the corporate level, and and the fact that you know our our students have paid tuition, and and you know so it's like I want to be supportive, and I want to, um, you know, not feel like I need to to hold them to to stringent rules, but at the same time, like I still want to give them a rigorous education because right. that's something they've invested in, and I'm invested in them for that reason. So yeah. it's such a weird balance. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. And of course, we're very fortunate to be employed and to have the kind of job that can somehow stumble on uh, in this online environment. And, you know, if this continues, I think we're going to see a lot of students thinking, well, maybe this summer is a time to finish that degree or skill up in something. And I, I would bet that especially at the um, at the community college level, technical college level, you're going to see an uptick in the mm-hmm. next year. Um, yeah. It's making me think as well about the kind of work we do and the, or the kind of work I do, I guess, and the kind of thinking I want to do. Like mm-hmm. we've been getting, as I'm sure many people have been getting, we've gotten some emails, you know, from the deans and provosts and stuff reminding us that most of you have more time now. So you should be, you should be more productive, you know. Exactly. No, that's crazy. That is not an opportunity to finish that article. You should have finished last year. Like that, I'm outraged on your behalf. (laughs) You know, and I think it's, and I'm about as privileged as I can be in this situation. Like I don't have Mm -hmm. children. I have a job I can do online. I'm still getting paid. I have a home. Mm -hmm. Like I'm very lucky. Um, and I do have, if anybody would have more time, it would be me. And I still feel like I have, don't have more time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but also it's making me think about like the kind of productive I want to be, you know, like, what kind of thinking do I want to accomplish? Is it the kind of thinking that can be like cranked out below, you know, as I push anxiety out of my mind? Or is it the kind of thinking that sits with that anxiety and allows it to produce, you know, real shifts in thought? And mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I'm 
my every part of me just keeps rebelling against this impetus to be more productive during during quarantine. But then at the same time, I'm pre-tenure faculty and I feel like I can't rebel against that. <laughs> I need to. Yeah. I need to wait to have that personal rebellion. <laughs> but but your dean should probably be like set on fire. Definitely <laughs> <laughs> the chair of our department was um, has been more kind. But yeah, it is it is unsettling to receive that kind of email. Like get get more work done. You know, finish that book. No. Assuming we for your mental health. health. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you have to be a human. And yeah, right now I'm just doing my best, I feel like, to just be a human. That's all we can do. Yeah. These are not normal, like, production imperative circumstances, right? Like, we don't have access to our books, our research, our teams. Like, every all of the work on the teaching end has been tripled quadrupled like mentally we're not in the space with our students where we thrive like we're adjusting to managing all of this now at home like if anything this is the most anti-productive sort of space we could find ourselves in right yeah right and travel to archives all of the things that we mm -hmm. do in universities and for the science students, it's arguably even worse. Right. Oh yeah, sure. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I have a I have a neighbor who had just set up her whole class around uh, collecting these data, this data on site at a zoo, and she had her undergraduates all set up to go and observe these animal behaviors. And now she's like, I guess we're writing papers on whatever you can find on the internet for the yeah. next several weeks. Yeah. So it was closed, and you can't go there, and you know, and you should be staying at home. So yeah, my, my summer class was also supposed to be getting data at our local zoo this summer. And we're like, well, it's closed. <laughs> Not happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, the huge um, in research universities, the huge loss to, um, you know, to to research programs that were regard, you know, relying on external funding and relying on mm -hmm. having lots of people in a small space working with equipment, you know, all of that is, has screeched to a halt. Yeah. Um, well, and, and the, the hiring process within so many universities, I, yeah. I have yeah. friends who have been on the job market this year and everything has just been paused, you know, they're, they're hiring freezes you know, and like, what does that mean for these universities who may really have needed to fill that position? And it's just not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. All our positions are frozen except for the offers we've already extended or being honored. Um, I, I also saw and, and, and shared uh, online um, that the University of Arizona is rescinding offers to students who have not already accepted um, that is graduate students who have not already accepted their funding, their funded positions. They've said, well, you know, might be too late for you <laughs> to accept. Uh, that just gave me goosebumps. <laughs> I heard of someone getting a, a job, like going on the job market, getting one offer and then that offer getting rescinded, one tenure track offer and it was rescinded after the hit, which is, that just, I know that there are worse things that can happen in this situation, but yeah. man, having gone yeah. through that just sounds so heartbreaking. And yeah. 
Uh, Carrie Kay wants you to tell her which school in the chat. I can't remember. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, um, do, do we have any kind of final thoughts for this week as we kind of go into the, we've got, I believe at this point, two, the two weeks that people are saying are the most dangerous. Now, of course, as we've said, that really depends on where you are and when they started shutting things down. And, you know, the, so the curve is going to be very, very different in different places. But, um, but this is the time we're supposed to be in kind of deepest lockdown. Um, thoughts about that? Yeah. We've got some comments. Yeah. So learning how to adjust with family, the base of society, totally spot on the importance of being informed. Thanks for tuning in y'all. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for you all. Thank It was nice. It's always really nice to, to chat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was nice thank to you join are. you all. Thank you for joining us. And it, yeah, it's, it's really, it's a great kind of like anchoring moment to the week to kind of, you know, okay, you see good people and process this and kind of mark the, mark another week. So yeah, we're in it together. Indeed. And thank you, Carrie, for organizing this yet again. Um, yeah. We don't have your voice, but we'll <laughs> that. Um, yeah. right, next we'll week, same time. time. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.